once we have these changes in the rules of the game uh, that really fosters a multi-party uh, system, uh, we'll have the ability for perhaps one or more parties that fully embrace racial equity as a value and organizing principle. Hi, I'm Erica Licht. And I'm Nikhil Raguvira. And this is Untying Knots. Today we'll be building on a conversation we had about two years back on the show on the relationship of communities and political power. In 2020, we had the pleasure of speaking with Ense Ufat of New Georgia Project and Chris Bruce of the ACLU of Georgia. And we talked about Black, Indigenous, and people of color voter suppression and community organizing around voter rights and justice. And we'll be deepening that conversation on elections by turning to the Pacific Northwest and the work of George Chung, director at More Equitable Democracy. George work focuses in a powerful way on advancing racial justice through electoral reform. More Equitable Democracy organizes with Black, Indigenous, and people of color voters as critical stakeholders, but also questions the very ways that our supposed democracy operates. Do we actually have a fair system of representation? Or actually, have we just been boxed in by the very notion that we can only have two major parties? The winner-take-all system just isn't working, especially given its impact on communities of color. And without political representation, how can we expect to advance real racial justice, or even democracy, in the U.S.? George will share with us how he and his team are building more equitable electoral systems throughout the country here in the U.S., and also what we should be learning from examples throughout global history. And just as a reminder, all views expressed by guests are their own. Thanks for listening. It's a pleasure to have you here, George, today. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Gong hei fa choi. May the tiger bring us strength for the road ahead. Mm, absolutely. Thank you. Well, it's really a pleasure to sit down with you um, in this conversation, both as someone who's been connected to Ira's work previously through our Truth and Transformation Conference, um, as well as as a fellow um, Kennedy School alum, uh, but most of all because you lead such incredible work at More Equitable Democracy. So I think just to get us started, it would be wonderful if you can give us a flyover of you know what does More Equitable Democracy do, and what are you really day-to-day working towards, day-to-day, year-to-year, to envision and build an equitable democracy, and particularly for Black, Indigenous, and people of color in the U.S.? Yeah. Uh, thanks again for this invite to join you. Um, More Equitable Democracy is a national racial justice organization. We work to advance racial equity through transforming our electoral systems. Uh, and we do that really through working with BIPOC-led organizations at the state and local level. We've been around for about five years now, and we really uh, provide a lot of deep technical assistance. Uh, in the past, it started with the census and more recently around redistricting. Uh, this has really allowed us to build strong and meaningful relationships and at the same time, planting seeds for future work around electoral systems change, which I'll go to a little bit later. 
Got it. And thanks so much for, for that kind of quick flyover. I know there's a lot more that we can dive into, and I'm really excited to do that. Uh, but before doing that um, and going more into the specific work of more equitable democracy, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey getting here uh, and your work in the Pacific Northwest over the last 20 years. I know part of that was you know going through HKS, but uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your journey to this work? Yes. So I am the son of immigrants. My parents grew up in Hong Kong, which at that time was a British colony. And I remember my father talking about feeling like a second-class citizen in his birthplace and obviously under British colonial rule, never really had any meaningful um, way to participate in democracy. Uh, and so fast forward from that experience of, of those stories that I, my, my father told in particular, my first job out of college was as a civil rights investigator for state government. And I was really excited about the job. I felt like I was standing on the shoulders of giants and it gave me an opportunity to really reflect on movement building, policy change, and then what happens after uh, policies uh, get enacted into law. I, it started to trouble me because my focus on fair housing led me to these questions about how does adjudicating individual acts of prejudice lead to the dismantling of segregation, which, as we understand now, is largely a creation of racist federal public policy. So at that time, I also followed the nomination of Lonnie Guineer to Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights in the first Clinton administration. Uh, and just want to you know, pay homage to her leadership and scholarship because she passed recently. So at that time, she was criticized for her scholarship, very unfairly, about affirmative action and voting rights. Uh, and I really read uh, and thought deeply about what she wrote, particularly on voting rights. She essentially argued that the Voting Rights Act was necessary, but stuck in the 1960s, and in many ways in conflict with the Fair Housing Act. So let me unpack that. Under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, it's illegal to dilute the vote strength of protected classes, particularly communities of color. There was a landmark decision called the Thornburg v. Jingles case in which the U.S. Supreme Court established a three-part test or set of preconditions to determine who's protected under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The first precondition is... Can the racial or language minority group constitute a majority in a single member district? Uh, and if it is, and the other preconditions are met, the main remedy is the drawing of the so-called majority minority district. And on, the, on its face, it seems very logical. Uh, you want to give an opportunity for certain groups that are shut out of power by making sure that they have a path to win in that particular area where they are highly concentrated. But in order to create a majority-minority district, you need residential segregation. And then uh, really, when she started to draw those connections, I was really stunned that under our current electoral system, generally speaking, it's called the, the winner-take-all electoral system, we need segregation to achieve some level of basic political representation for communities of color. I, I, I really didn't know what to do with that conclusion, because it really undermined my confidence uh, in our representative democracy. Um, thinking about Asian Americans who don't have the same experience of 
um, segregation that black and brown communities have faced, uh, you know, very difficult to draw a majority uh, Asian American district anywhere in the country outside of Hawaii and maybe California, New York. Uh, and so at that point, there really wasn't any place for me to plug in uh, to focus on advocacy for electoral systems reform from that racial equity perspective. So very uneasily, I kind of tucked that back in the back of my mind for a while. I went on to do my master in public policy. I studied geographic information systems, so at least I'd have some tools to get engaged in this whole process. And then I, I just threw myself into a lot of organizing work. I directed uh, in Washington State our statewide LGBTQ uh, equality organization, Equal Rights Washington, where we're able to pass anti-discrimination, and I helped lay the foundation for marriage equality. That happened several years later. I worked for a group that promoted civic engagement uh, in communities of color by providing tools to groups that's, uh, to support their voter registration and get out the vote work. And then I ended up in philanthropy for about five years, uh, supporting democracy reform work uh, in the Great Lakes states. Um, but uh, then the 2016 elections happened. Um, I think that the, I just saw so much more conversation about systems change that many people started to question, how did authoritarianism creep into our politics? And what is like the connection with our electoral system? And for me, I really saw that the piece that was really missing was... Uh, how to center communities of color in this change-making process, which then led me to establish uh, the organization that I currently lead, More Equitable Democracy. That was uh, just incredibly, incredibly laid out for us. Um, and I mean that really seriously. Like that was not only such a beautiful journey to hear about of making these, you know, connections like, uh, conceptual connections, but literal and organizing connections, but just also like the meaning making that you've done out of both through lived experience and, you know, professional academic, you know, make this analysis of how not only, as you said, you know, this electoral system has failed us, but also particularly harmed, you know, communities of color and frankly, you know, it, it exploited them. Um, as, as you've really, you know, indicated for us. Um, I just want to say too, I'm so grateful for your, um, kind of homage to, uh, Lonnie Guineer, who, uh, who passed recently and who, you know, for the Harvard community, I think was such a landmark person, as you said, who was really pushing for a critical, um, you know, racial equity analysis, um, you know, very much long ago. Um, so, you know, just building on so much of what you've talked about, um, and I just have to say too, shout out to GIS, which I, I also studied years ago in my human geography <laughs> degree. Nice. Um, but I, I would love for you to tell us more about this work that you've built through more equitable democracy, you know, based on this, the kind of origin story, which you shared, um, now that you're deep in the work, one of the projects that we were reading up on about is, um, this cohort based work and particularly this coaching that the organization provides. Um, and in one of the videos documenting the work, I loved the coach athlete metaphor, um, that was mentioned. Um, and, and you know, obviously more equitable democracy be being in that coaching role. Um, can you talk to us a little bit more about the impact 
and even the development of these state-based cohorts and, you know, what do you see as making them unique and, and also what is offered by this type of collaborative model? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'll tell the story about our work, which um, predates the formal cohort that is just launching now um, as uh, a good reflection of the type of support that we have been providing to groups across the country. So Washington is our home state. Uh, Most of our staff is based here in the Seattle metropolitan area. And so when we started about five years ago, I knew that the census was going to be a major challenge for communities of color. Um, You know, rewinding 10 years before, uh, under an administration that uh, was very much in, uh, uh, was willing to invest resources and had leadership um, at the head of the Department of Commerce, actually our former governor, Gary Locke, um, who did a lot of work to promote the census. It was just like a no-brainer, everyone should participate, uh, and it leads to um, an equitable share of resources for your community. There was nothing controversial about it at all. It was kind of boring, in fact. Uh, but then fast forward, uh, we had an administration. Well, um, I knew that the census was moving to largely an online data collection process, which I knew given the uh, uneven access uh, to broadband, uh, that this would be a big challenge for a lot of communities of color. Um, as well as the administration using a lot of scare tactics to depress participation. So um, the other side of the coin was that given all of this controversy around the census, I knew that there would be state and local government resources and philanthropic resources that would really move to try to promote um, a full count. So uh, at the very early phases of more equitable democracy, we helped convene a group of uh, BIPOC leaders to really start talking about how do we prepare for the census and how do we use um, the resources that are going to come for the census as a means to a longer term end? How do we build capacity and engage organizers uh, to really deepen their skills on communicating uh, with communities, Uh, who are largely left out of the process. Uh, And then the pandemic hits, which made the whole uh, engagement, the kind of um, person-to-person relational organizing work even that much more important. So we really started to really make lemonade out of these lemons. This group of community leaders came together. Uh, We provided as much technical support as we could to establish the Washington Census Alliance. And I give a shout out to my um, colleague, Heather Villanueva, who's our deputy director, who led the effort to advocate for additional resources at the state government level. And in fact, Washington state was one of the states that allocated the most amount of money, $15 million to support census engagement work. So with that uh, money allocated, uh, we then turned to helping um, create a relational organizing model for the Washington uh, Census Alliance uh, to apply for uh, a good chunk of that money. We uh, ended up getting about five of the $15 million, hired and trained organizers uh, across the state through uh, a lot of community-based partners, uh, and with, which led to the one of the best counts that we've had in Washington State's history. And uh, Washington performed 
uh, at one of the highest levels compared to other states. So from that experience of building capacity, working together uh, in terms of a, a multiracial coalition, um, the organizers and the leaders decided to continue moving forward. And we helped um, birth the Washington Community Alliance as the kind of next iteration of uh, the work that started with the census work. And from there, uh, the organization, I'm really proud to say, uh, has started to take on a lot of democracy reform work uh, because it sees that systems change work as critical to the long-term empowerment of communities of color. So they've been doing a lot of work around enforcement of our state voting rights act. Washington is one of just a small handful of states that has its own state-based voting rights act. Uh, so it's using though that new um, authority to challenge inequitable electoral systems at the local level, um, and has also been advocating for more um, local options for uh, cities and counties to adopt more equitable electoral systems um, as a way to make sure that communities of color have a voice at the table. So that's just one example of how we've been able to show up, provide technical assistance on pieces through you know, the census. And we also, uh, one piece that I forgot to mention is the Washington Community Alliance led uh, redistricting justice for Washington to advocate for the best lines possible. So we've been very behind the scenes, but very critical um, in ensuring that uh, partners like the Washington Community Alliance have the capacity to take advantage of these systems change opportunities. Fabulous. Um, well, that's, I mean, yeah, organizing power in action. Um, it's really, it's really a treat to hear about just the, um, yeah, the real power of what you're building on the ground and with people and in their communities and being engaged directly with both the tools and processes. Um, and just congratulations also on the work um, that you've done um, you know, that, that you're seeing the impact of directly in Washington state right now, um, particularly around the census, but also, as you said, you know, much beyond, um, you know, I, the, any given specific census or census year, um, before we hear a bit more about, um, the kind of mission overall of more equitable democracy, can you paint us a picture a bit of, working in Washington state and, and, or the Pacific Northwest, because I think just speaking as someone who grew up in new England, um, and lived elsewhere, but also has never lived in the, the Pacific Northwest. I think it would be really help. It would be helpful perhaps just to kind of, yeah, if you could share with us more about, um, what the landscape, I guess, politically and socially feels like working there, both in terms of how systemic racism, you know, is operating, but also, and I, I essentially, I'm asking you to just say, like, you know, is it is it the what beyond the um, the Amazon and Microsoft metropole? Like, what is it like to be in Seattle and Washington State and the Pacific Northwest? Wow, oh, that's a super interesting question uh, because I feel like um, Seattle and the rest of Washington are in many ways very, very different places. Uh, so I'll start with um, the Seattle metropolitan area. One of the things that has been really powerful is the legacy of multiracial organizing in the Seattle metro area that over the course of 
our development uh, as a regional economy, there hasn't been one um, dominant um, racial ethnic group. And so there has been this really interesting legacy of cross-racial coalition building uh, that happened, you know, a lot of it was spurred in the 1960s where there were some uh, radical leaders uh, who were really speaking truth to power. Um, Bob Santos from the Filipino and Asian American community, uh, Larry Gossett, uh, who um, did a lot of black student organizing, uh, and Bernie White Bear, um, who uh, was a very powerful Native American activist. They came together and a lot of other activists uh, to form organizations and to um, uh, demand resources for communities that were largely left out of public budgets uh, and really established a, a legacy of working together across racial ethnic lines. And having lived in other places like Chicago, where there's a lot of tension between black and brown communities, I feel like that uh, growing up in Seattle and doing a lot of organizing in Seattle, I kind of approached uh, the kind of as given assumptions that folks of color should work together because we're all in it together and we don't have enough power separately to make change on our own. When I reflect about the rest of the state, I really think largely about Central Washington, uh, which is a largely agricultural um, economy. Um, it's largely exploitation of farm workers, frankly, Latino farm workers, uh, to um, make money off of uh, apples and cherries and um, uh, other, other crops. Uh, and so I feel like that is a completely separate story, which is parallel to what a lot of other people see in, in places where there is one large racial ethnic group. I will say that uh, Yakima County, which is uh, the base of a lot of this agricultural industry, is also home to the Yakima Nation, which is our largest Native American uh, tribe uh, and reservation. Um, but still, in terms of just sheer numbers, it is Latinos uh, who have organized uh, for decades. And uh, because of, once again, the electoral system, which puts them at a huge disadvantage, they can get to almost 50 plus one uh, percent of the total population and still be completely shut out of power. Uh, and so we have very different dynamics in central Washington, um, where uh, there has been um not a deep investment in organizing and one community in particular, the Latino community, which has really um, not been able to have a real voice at uh, the policymaking table there. So I think we're really talking about um, tale of two regions, if you will. Thanks, George. And I know that's like a lot to cover for an entire for an entire region, but helpful. Erica mentioned that she's familiar with the Northeast. I grew up in the Southeast. So it's there's there's kind of different aspects, right, to, to think about. And I appreciate that you kind of went back and thought about history, right? You also uh, you kind of talked about looking at the 1960s and the organizing there and kind of that history and how that affects present day. Yes, we still are standing on the shoulders of giants. And I think about that every day. Right, exactly. And it's building on their work, right? It's taking that work that they've done, that foundation, and then building on and pushing that, pushing that forward. Yes, exactly. Um, so like taking, shifting gears a little bit, early on, you mentioned something that I thought was quite powerful. Um, you said that, you know, 
basically that residential, that kind of in our winner-take-all system, we essentially need segregation, right? Segregation is is entirely built into the system of how we elect and how we've designed our democracy for this kind of winner-take-all. And I think that kind of looking, my understanding of miraculous um, democracy is that this is very much tied to the work that, that you all are doing. Um, and really kind of looking at voting in America, it's that we have a winner-take-all system that's resulted in elected officials who don't represent the very communities that they're meant to serve. And it, in, in my mind, at least, it, give, it seems to give people a false sense of choice. Um, and then kind of building from there, this is particularly bad, right, for advancing racial and econo- economic justice. And so it seems like one of the things that um, MED has looked at is looking at a proportional representation and more of a multi-party system. And my understanding is that some of this is similar to what, what's done in Ireland and Australia. Uh, but you, could you explain a little bit more about what this is and exactly why you think uh, this is needed? Yes, this is one of my favorite topics. Uh um, I guess one of the things about the pandemic is I don't go to cocktail parties because uh, this is what I would talk to everyone, all the other guests. So I'm very grateful at this opportunity to uh, talk more about uh, something that other maybe, maybe some people might feel will be boring, but maybe by the time that I'm done, people will be more excited about thinking about this. So I want to start by talking about where does the winner-take-all system come from? Um, there is a very specific history. In 1430, the English Parliament established the first electoral system in Western democracy. And in that system, which is now called the winner-take-all system, they already had counties uh, that provided some level of governance. And so after the Magna Carta, um, you know, the king uh, was forced to give up uh, some power uh, and so there was a system uh, of elections to um, elect elected officials that were called Knights of the Shire. Here's where I'm supposed to insert a clever joke about uh, Lord of the Rings, but I don't have one. Uh, so mm-hmm. Knights of the Shire were essentially um, delegates uh, to represent the white, well, of course, I guess everyone was white there, the um, male landowners of land over a particular value to provide feedback on tax policy to the king. And so based in a county, you got got to vote, and whoever got the most votes was selected as the knight of the shire. And so they'd go to the king and do what they would do. Uh, And so that was the only system in place for hundreds of years, literally about 400 years. Uh, and so fast forward to about the mid-1800s. By this time, as nation-states were emerging and there was an expansion of the franchise, so you started seeing men without property, uh, women and people of color uh, in different political contexts uh, getting the right to vote, um, there was a lot of conversation about does this winner-take-all system actually adequately represent all these voices in our political system? Because if you think about it, the winner-take-all system where you just, it's a plurality vote, whoever gets the most votes in a particular area, it's like its like electing your, your 
student body representative uh, in like a little popularity contest in a home room, right? Whoever gets the most, you send off uh, to be part of whatever student body. Uh, but if you just run that exercise a hundred times over, will you get a legislative body that actually represents the whole electorate? Put in that similar analogy, will you get a student body uh, uh, representatives that actually reflect, reflects a whole high school? Probably not. You'll probably get a bunch of kids that um, are native English speakers who are wealthy, who are well-connected. Uh, and that analogy applies to our winner-take-all elections. And so by the mid-1800s, countries and cities in the U.S. Um, started to experiment with other forms of electoral systems to get around this conundrum uh, of the winner-take-all system not leading to a reflective democracy. And so, yes, Australia, Ireland, Denmark were some of the first countries uh, to implement uh, a form of proportional representation uh, but I want to tell two quick stories of places that use them that I think are really important for our conversation today. The first one is actually uh, Northern Ireland. So in the early 1900s, uh, after the establishment of the Irish Republic and the separation of Northern Ireland, uh, there was um, a lot of hand-wringing uh, by the pro-unionists. And when I say union and not not labor union, pro-union with uh, England and the United Kingdom. Because as the in the establishment of uh, Northern Ireland, there was a lot of um, anxiety by the pro-unionists about, well, what if the Catholics uh, who are, uh, whose population is increasing quicker than the pro-unionists, the Protestants, what if they become the majority and are able uh, to... Um, start to win governing power in Northern Ireland. Like that is an existential threat uh, to our control of this place that we call ours. Uh, and so though they had, a, a, a at the beginning of Northern Ireland, they had uh, for just a few years of a system of proportional representation, um, very quickly, the pro-unionists were able to impose winner-take-all elections very, very similar to our system here in the U.S. of single-member districts that they were able to heavily gerrymander and essentially manufacture um, a majority uh, for the pro-unionists. And so this really was one of the cornerstones that led to uh, generations of conflict between the uh, Protestants and the Catholics, uh, the so-called um, troubles, if you will. Um, and a lot of the Catholics, because of the uh, scalpel used by the pro-unionists to draw these lines to disadvantage the Catholics, a lot of them started to feel like it doesn't matter if we vote because we can't win. Uh, and a lot of them ended up uh, uh, becoming part of Sinn Féin and the Irish Republican Army because they felt like if my ballot is useless, Perhaps um, violence is the only alternative that I have. And so by the time of the early 1990s, uh, where the Clinton administration was very um, pivotal in helping to promote the uh, Good Friday Peace Accords, one of the biggest um, tenets of that um, peace agreement was 
the banning of winner-take-all elections in favor of proportional representation in order to make sure that the Catholic communities had a real path to political power and voice in their system. And in fact, you know, fast forwarding to now, of course, there's lots of challenges with Brexit and the implications there. But it went from like a very two-party system of like the um, pro-Catholic versus the pro-unionist Protestants um, who were just at war with one another to essentially like a five-party system where there are two Catholic parties, two Protestant parties, and one kind of uh, non-religiously affiliated party uh, in which they can create coalitions based on whatever policy that they're deciding on to make good public policy. And once again, the Catholics, because of the Good Friday Accords, felt like they really could be part of Northern Ireland democracy. So... uh, they did not. What they did not do is they did not form bipartisan redistricting commissions to draw lines that could give um, majority Catholic districts uh, uh, as a, the only kind of way to provide, uh, let's say, um, minimal representation for the Catholics. They just went to systems change altogether to some form of proportional representation. So that's one really interesting international or comparative story. The other story that I love to talk about is New York City. Um, for those listeners out there who live in the city, um, you, if you vote, uh, you probably experienced ranked choice voting uh, for the first time this past election for the mayor's election. And that obviously was a big change because now uh, ranked choice voting is being used uh, in the largest jurisdiction in the country, local jurisdiction. However, it is actually not the first time that New York City has used ranked choice voting. Actually, New York City used ranked choice voting uh, with multi-member districts beginning in the 1930s. So we have this legacy of the progressive reform movement uh, that really saw as one of the things that they really wanted to focus on was corruption Uh, by mostly the democratic machines in big cities as the thing that they really wanted to tackle. And so here is the uh, machine that is able to, once again, uh, manipulate maps for their single-member districts. And though they largely were 60% of the electorate in terms of those who favored uh, machine candidates, they were able to manufacture about 90 to 95% uh, of seats uh, in terms of winning um, at the city council level. And so a lot of reformers got together uh, and proposed, uh, based on the experience in other jurisdictions, particularly over uh, overseas, um, a similar model uh, of proportional representation that's called single transferable vote, where you have multi-member districts and ranked choice voting. I won't go into the specifics about the uh, math behind it, um, but suffice it to say, um, each borough had a set number of council members based on their, I think, voter turnout in a previous election. You ranked your ballot, and then the top X number would get elected. So without districts, uh, African-American voters were able to combine their votes, let's say, those who lived downtown in Manhattan with those who lived in, let's say, Harlem, uh, they were uh, able to elect the first African-American to New York City Council, um, Adam Clayton Powell, who ended up uh, going to run for Congress and represent New York State in Congress. Uh, And then uh, after he 
leaves, I think after one or one and a half terms, uh, another African-American gets elected, uh, also from Manhattan, a guy by the name of Ben Davis, who actually runs uh, as uh, a member of the American Communist Party. You know, uh, uh, clearly communism doesn't have the same sting that it ha- had back in the uh, time of, uh, you know, the, the Cold War. Uh, but let's say that um, those who are more progressive than the kind of non-ideological uh, democratic machine uh, consolidated their support around the American Labor Party and the Communist Party. And Ben Davis was able to really speak truth to power uh, and run unabashedly as a progressive, as a communist, and win a seat. Something that would have never happened uh, had uh, New York City con- uh, still continued to have a um, winner-to-call single-member district system. So those are two really good examples, both internationally and here at home, where we've experimented with uh, alternative electoral systems uh, and come up with results that really are better reflections of who we are as as a community, as a country, as a city. Yeah, I mean, this sense of better electoral systems is it's just fascinating. And it's wonderful to hear about these real life examples in practice, you know, building, you know, a healthy democracy, you know, in the U.S.'s case, a democracy that has never really existed. And uh, most of all, I think that, as you've said, is is act that could actually represent voices of the people in the system. I just have to say too, uh, I don't think I mentioned to you, George, I and um, my close colleague, Dr. Khalil Mohammed, we're going to Northern Ireland in just a few weeks ah. um, for our research work <laughs> to um, better understand a lot of the history that you described. But I, in fact, you know, it might've come up in some of my, my pre-reading about, um, you know, the, um, the tenets of the the Good Friday Peace Accords, you know, what, what was established and, you know, policy and kind of societal change, but I did not recall that. And so your, your painting the picture of that was extremely fascinating and I can't wait to report back also on the trip and, um, and just, you know, being able to kind of see that more in action in person. Take me with you, please. <laughs> I hope so. Next, next time. (laughs) Next time. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, you know, we're, we're soon closing out our time here today, but we, I did want to ask you one more question about essentially what is at stake? And you've already, you've already said this in, in so many ways, but I feel, you know, it's important for us to just ask you kind of more pointedly, you know, when we talk about electoral power, power of the people, especially women, gender nonconforming people, queer people, trans people, people of color, immigrants, black people, indigenous people, marginalized people, what is at stake? And and what do you hope to see in the collective organizing that you're a part of in the next few years, um, decades, so it's, I guess, both a question of what is at stake and also how you are seeing you know, long and short-term change right now when it comes to electoral power, um, electoral you know, districts, representation, et cetera. Yeah. Wow. Um, I think what's at stake is the ability for us as 
a country to really dismantle systemic racism in our country. When we think about the winner-take-all system, um, there was a French uh, social scientist who came up with uh, Duverger's Law, which basically uh, says that when you have a winner-take-all system, you inevitably will end up with a two-party system. Uh, minor parties, so-called minor parties, ended up end up abandoning their efforts because they can't get elected in a uh, in a winner-take-all system, and so that two-party system that comes from the winner-take-all system really has exacerbated differences within our communities and has led to the deep, deep polarization that we're in now, such that communities of color largely feel uh, treated as cattle. That, uh, at least from the viewpoint of the Democratic Party, uh, communities of color are those that need to be turned out because they uh, will vote for a particular party Uh, They have no other choice that is viable, so they just need a call to remind them uh, a few days before the election that, hey, you got to vote for us because what else are you going to do? We're way better than your other choice, so there it is. And so, so much more energy gets focused on this kind of dwindling number of the so-called swing voter and what are their interests. They're not paying attention. They don't have many opinions, but everyone wants to spend so much money and figure out, like, how do we create a whole... A policy agenda that will respond to them. Uh, And that's not really leading us anywhere uh, to the deep conversations uh, like um, uh, around reparations for slavery that we need to have before we can really move on. Uh, And so part of why I think what's at stake is the ability for us to really tackle systemic racism is that we fundamentally believe that a multi-party system is necessary to achieve that. Once we have these changes in the rules of the game uh, that really fosters a multi-party system uh, will have the ability for uh, perhaps one or more parties that fully embrace racial equity as a value and organizing principle. Um, And then the negotiations around uh, policies related to racial equity become completely different, as well as how communities of color are engaged and mobilized, not being asked at the 11th hour, hey, you got to vote for us because we're not those guys, uh, but rather um, this party's for us. This party is about uh, building political power so that we can transform this country uh, and really live up to the values that um, that we profess to to abide by. Thanks. That's, that's quite powerful. Um, and that was very helpful. I think you've I think talking about, you know, the idea that a multi-party system is necessary, right, for broader transformation, that it's not going to happen from a two-party system because it's simply not going to be designed to even represent the people who it's meant to represent in the first place. Yes. And so I know we're, we're coming out of time, unfortunately. I know there's so much more we can talk about, but I do want to wrap up and say Thank you. Thank you so much for this, George. I think, at least for me, this was incredibly helpful. I, I think you brought in both this perspective of what's happening now, but you also went through history. Um, explain how the work that you're doing today is building on the shoulders of others, um, as well as exploring how the systems in place are now in place because of history. But these are the things that we have to change. And so thank you. Thank you absolutely so much for, for joining us, George, and all the work that you're doing in the Pacific Northwest. 
I appreciate this opportunity. You know, we've constructed these systems. Uh, we can reconstruct them too. Absolutely. Well, here's to that and in this new year. Thank you again. Be well. Thank you. Gong hei fa choi. Well, that's a wrap of our show and our conversation with George Chung of More Equitable Democracy. It was really a pleasure to hear much more deep in the weeds about what the work to advance racial justice looks like in policy and practice when it comes to our electoral systems. And all the ways forward to organize in community, relationship building, and also for a more equitable society. This is Untying Knots. Thanks for listening. Untying Knots is hosted by Nikhil Raguvira and Eric Licht. It is a collaboration with the Institutional Anti-Racism and Accountability Project and supported by the Harvard Kennedy School Ash Center. We'd like to thank George Chung for his time in speaking with us. Music is Beauty Flow by Kevin McCloyd. <laughs>